This evening, we're going to look at the parallepsis of this epistle, which reaches from verses 19 to 22. We have discussed this term parallepsis before when we lined out the larger or more comprehensive outline of the structure of the entire epistle. That's outline number four in this series, or handout number four. But this evening I want to remind us of exactly what parallepsis is because the apostle uses it here in verse 19. It's a form of irony in which a speaker or a writer indicates he won't discuss a matter but then goes on to discuss the matter. And here the apostle says... I could mention to you that you owe me even yourself, but I won't mention it. But, in fact, he does. Now, the most famous illustration or example of parallepsis comes from William Shakespeare's Julius Caesar and the famous oration of Mark Anthony at the death of Caesar. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Now, the rest of that famous speech, which all of us in the 50s who went to school in that generation were required to memorize and recite as as a presentation, I'm sure they don't require that you do it anymore. But nonetheless, it's good for your soul, and it's also good as a device for training your mind to think one line after another. Well... Mark Anthony, after that famous introduction, having said that he didn't come to praise Caesar, goes on to praise Caesar. And so that's a a perfect example of a parallepsis. As the apostle is is, uh, using the device here. So we're dealing in this unit with Paul ingratiating himself even further towards Philemon, but doing so with an ironic, paraleptic type of language. At least he begins that way. Now, as he unfolds uh, his case here in this last portion of the epistle, he also uses a chiasm as a structural device. We have observed this chiasm once before, uh, again, in that larger comprehensive structural outline. But here I direct your attention to its position. You will notice in verse 22 that the apostle uh, appeals for Philemon's prayers on his behalf. Now that's the second time in this letter that he has mentioned prayer. And the first time he mentioned it was back in verse 4 where he was making the petitions. He was uh, beseeching the Lord, remembering Philemon and the community in that Colossian church. Here, it's the backside, or it's the reverse of that. He's asking Philemon, and to Philemon, ultimately, for the community in Colossae, Christian community, to uh, pray for him. All right, so before this prayer uh, 
uh, <coughs> comment, the apostle places a chiastic pattern, chiastic structure. After he had made that uh, comment about remembering Philemon in his prayers in verse 4, he followed that by a chiastic pattern. So we have this symmetry in this epistle where the where the word prayer or prayers is used and it's followed by a chiasm initially and it's preceded by a chiasm subsequently. So we're reminded again of something we pointed out in the broader structure of this letter of the correspondence, symmetry, the parallels, this kind of reflective pattern, which is also true of a chiasm. You see the mirror reflection in verse 19 and verse 21. I, Paul, write to you. That's a mirror reflection of the apostle and what he's involved in doing. Then as we move to verse 20, there is a mirror between the Lord and Christ. That's a mirror reflection. Christ, the Lord, is a reflective image. And sandwiched between the Lord Christ is the heart of the apostle whom he pleads, uh, whose heart he pleads to be refreshed. This is an interesting use of the chiasm here. You'll notice that he places himself in his heart, that is the center of his emotions, the center of his being, the center of his consciousness, the center of his soul. He places his heart between the Lord Christ or Christ the Lord. It's a quite uh, beautiful uh, chiastic positioning because we see the the, the life uh, the life force uh, the life drama of the apostle sandwiched or reflected between Christ his Lord. All right, now um, in this unit, verses nineteen to twenty-two. We actually have a erstwhile uh, narrative sequence. How does that uh, fall out? In verse 19, he indicates that Philemon has benefited from him, which raises the question of how did that benefit occur? What was the context of that beneficial relationship? And so what we have here in verse 19 is a flashback to the conversion of Philemon, which we'll comment on in a little more detail later on. So we actually have a narrative flashback here in this verse, which goes back to the beginning of Paul's encounter with Philemon and Philemon's relationship with the apostle. Then in verse 20, whereas in verse 19 he says, you have benefited from me, now in verse 20 let me benefit from you. This isn't a flashback. This is actually a fast forward. This is an expression of the apostle's aspiration, his hope that Philemon will, in fact, be a beneficiary to him as he had been a beneficiary to Philemon. So the narrative is projecting itself forward to the beneficial exchange of Philemon on behalf of the Apostle Paul. 
What that will be well, is not expressed, but it is the aspiration of the apostle that there will be some mutual benefit uh, in the future. Then in verse 21, the apostle, I'm sorry, verse yes, verse 21, the apostle says that he is confident in Philemon's compliance or obedience. Actually here, the better translation is compliance. That is, he will actually uh, take pleasure alongside of the apostle in the request that the apostle makes. Obedience is probably a a little too much on the side of you have a legal obligation here. And actually, he's not placing any legal obligations on Philemon. It's the very reverse. He's taking legal obligations upon himself. So he's he's attempting to keep Philemon out of that type of paradigm by by commending or encouraging compliance. That is, that you'll go along with my request. And obviously, the narrative portrait here is the reception of Onesimus back into the household of Philemon as his servant slave. So we're we're anticipating what the apostle is requesting, and we see the the sequence there of Onesimus and Philemon reconciled and reunited. Finally, verse twenty-two is a declaration of the apostles' anticipated visitation. And so the narrative here is also a fast-forward looking to the occasion when in the providence of God, Paul will come to Colossae. He will come to Philemon's house. He will come to the church in Philemon's house. He will come to see Onesimus in Philemon's house and the church for which he has prayed in that house, the apostle projects his coming to Philemon and to the Christian community in Colossae. All right, now, this concluding narrative sequence, as you can see, begins at the inaugural meeting between Paul and Philemon. It flows through the encounter of Onesimus with Paul, which caused the apostle to to uh, advocate on his behalf and therefore projects Onesimus into the narrative of Philemon more poignantly because of his uh, relationship with the apostle Paul and then ingratiates Philemon to respond to Paul's appeals as this narrative continues to unfold. There's no heavy hand here. As you can see, this, these verses and this sequence unfolds in a very genuine and tender uh, style. Uh, there is, uh, there's no edge to the apostle's language. He's not twisting uh, Philemon's arm. He's not attempting to use his apostolic power and authority He is very patiently, very tenderly, very poignantly, very compassionately drawing Philemon into the drama of uh, Onesimus being in Christ and what 
that means for his own relationship to his former slave. I point that out again because of the number of commentators and scholars who have looked at the apostles' rhetoric here, they've looked at his style of language, they have evaluated his, uh, his appeals and pleas and declarations, including his imperatives, and have said, and I'm quoting them, that Paul is exercising a heavy hand here. He is bringing pressure to bear on Philemon. I'm not persuaded of any of that. I am persuaded that it tells us more about the personality of those commentators who see that in the apostle than it tells us about the personality of the apostle as it's found in his own words and his own emotions through those words in this letter. I find Paul very, very compassionate here, very, very patient, very, very sensitive and tender to drawing Philemon into the tender and patient drama of what it means to be mirrored or sandwiched in Christ the Lord. All right, now he mentions writing this epistle with his own hand in verse 19. It is not the only place where he says uh, he has penned a letter with his own hand. I've listed some of the other places in the New Testament where that is present. Here, he not only mentions it once, but he duplicates it in uh, verse 21. It's an emphatic underscoring of the fact that he has taken pen in hand. He has not dictated this letter to a scribe or a secretary, to an amanuensis. He has himself picked up the pen. He has himself constructed this letter. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he has sent this letter inspired by the Holy Ghost through the hand of Onesimus, his child, in the faith. Now that is another touch. That's another rhetorical touch which would in, in, endear Philemon to listen, to read carefully, to heed the appeal, to submit to the poignancy of what the apostle is requesting here. This is not just a letter from the circle of the apostles. This is not just a letter which Paul dashed off and and someone else copied it down and then uh, was sent on. No, this letter, which I hold in my hand, is an autographer from the apostle. Philemon, when he held this copy, was holding an autograph, an autographical copy of the apostle's own writing. And that of course, would uh, would uh, draw him even more poignantly into uh, the apostle's uh, request and into the apostle's uh, <clears throat> plea. So the duplication here is a duplication of doubled poignancy, doubled emotional tenderness, doubled emotional, see, it's my hand that I'm writing this with. See, once again, it's my hand. I want you to remember 
I've taken the time to write this with my own hand. And Philemon, holding that writing in his hand, would be touched, would be touched with the apostles' own consideration, the apostles' own deliberation, the apostles' own uh, taking pen in hand on his behalf to make this epistolary appeal. All right, now, in that 19th verse, in the NASB, Paul indicates that he's willing to repay any debt or obligation that Onesimus has. The word pay it here, which has the suggestion of a debt, either a financial debt or a legal debt, is a word which was which is consonant or consistent with the commercial arena which we explored last time in verses 17 and 18. The language of imputation, the language of charging, the language of putting something to one's account. That's the same world of reference which this word here suggests confirming that Paul is assuming either a financial obligation or a legal obligation to pay what is owed to pay the debt of Onesimus on his behalf. So it reinforces the substitutionary element in the apostle's position. It reinforces the imputational imagery of the apostle's position, and it underscores the fact that he assumes a debt that doesn't belong to him, but he's uh, taking on the debt that belongs to another, and he's volunteering to be responsible for canceling that, for paying it off, for satisfying the obligation. Once again, this is the type of language which arises from that in Christ, in the Lord, in Christ, positioning and uh, identification. I will take the debt of your slave even as my Lord and Master took the debt of his slave, namely yours truly, the Apostle Paul. Out of this rich Christian image of Christ as substitute, Christ as imputer, Christ as payer of our debt, Christ as taking on our penalties and obligations. Out of that rich imagery, the apostle places himself in the same paradigm, not for redemptive purposes, but for the purpose of canceling and assuming obligations on behalf of another. It is a eudaimonistic exercise on his part, it is the height of Christian charity in his exercising in his part. It is, in fact, flowing out of his identity and participation with the Christ who has paid his own debts in full. Well, how great was Philemon's debt to Paul? Well, it is certainly greater than Onesimus's debt to Philemon. Why do I say that? Philemon's debt to Paul was much greater 
than Onesimus' debt to Philemon. We suggested last week that it is possible that the suggestion of Theodore of Cyrus in the 5th century, namely that Onesimus was a thief and so he had robbed his master, that on the basis of the language that's used there, it is conceivable that that was the case. That would be reinforced here in verse 19 with this language of, I will pay it. In other words, I'll pay the value of what he stole from you, if in fact that is what happened. But regardless of what the specific offense was, what the specific debt was, whether Theodore is right or other speculators about the fact that he absconded with something or he just simply took the value of his labor away from his master and ran away and robbed him of the fruits or benefits of uh, his daily daily work. Nonetheless, Paul says that he will assume it, and uh, that debt to Philemon is less than the debt that Philemon owes to Paul. Why? Because of Acts 19, 9, and 10. So let's turn back to Acts chapter 19. And when somebody has it, let's read it out. Acts 19, 9, and 10. This setting of this uh, material is at Ephesus, city on the west coast of Asia Minor. In verse 1, you will notice that Paul has come to Ephesus and found some disciples there. Verses 9 and 10, whoever has it, please read it out. But then some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the multitude. He withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this took place for two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. All right, now you'll notice from that passage that when Paul came to Ephesus, he went to the synagogue in verse 8, and the Jews, becoming hardened, drove him out, or he withdrew from the synagogue to a place called the school of Tyrannus. Now, we don't know uh, who this Tyrannus was, You'll see the English word tyrant in that uh, Greek word. And uh, it's not likely that uh, any mother would have named her child Tyrannus because uh, she was naming him as a tyrant. It would be too early to tell. Uh, So uh, Tyrannus here probably is not an allusion to the character of the individual who ran this school. It is simply an ordinary name of the Greco-Roman culture at the time. But he runs a school, or at least he has a school, or at least that's the way the Greek term is translated here, though school is probably too ambitious. It connotes uh, to us, you know, a large multi-roomed building with various uh, teachers roaming the halls and students in various classrooms, that type of, of scenario. And that is not the portrait 
of the School of Tyrannus. This was probably a small auditorium hall, a small lecture hall, which was open uh, during the daytime, particularly during the hot uh, hours of the day between 11 in the morning and 4 in the afternoon when people tended to uh, kind of uh, have a siesta (laughs) or slow down a little bit because it was too hot uh, to uh, work diligently. And they would uh, roam around the city of Ephesus and drop into some of these lecture halls. And Tyrannus uh, operated one, obviously, uh, which was available in that period. So uh, whether he had his lectures early in the morning for his students or later in the evening is not possible to tell. But Paul probably was able to use this hall when he wasn't using it, which likely would be in that window between 11 and 4. So for two years, Paul speaks and preaches in that lecture hall. And you'll notice in verse 10 that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord. That is, persons from all regions in Asia, literally here, west coast of Asia Minor, all persons from all regions of Asia Minor heard the word of the Lord. And that means persons from Colossae persons who were in Ephesus, perhaps on business, persons who were in Ephesus, perhaps because they were taking a vacation to go to a very famous city. It was quite uh, lovely in terms of its architecture. It was quite a vigorous metropolitan center in terms of its trade and tourist attractions. And so it is conceivable the Philemon either took a vacation or was on a business trip and encountered Paul in the school of Tyrannus because all Asia, persons from all parts of Asia Minor, particularly Western Asia Minor, heard the gospel from the apostle there for two years, actually longer than two years. He says later on that he was preaching in Ephesus for three years. And this is the place, Ephesus is the place, where for three years he preached the whole counsel of God. Chapter 20, verse 27. In other words, we don't see Paul here in Ephesus simply evangelizing, simply preaching the salvation message of the gospel. He is preaching that. He is teaching that. He's teaching the whole counsel of God. He's teaching the range of what we would call the whole system of doctrine. He is teaching the whole uh, panoply of what Christianity is about in relationship to Judaism, in relationship to the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the second coming of Christ. He is talking about sin. He is talking about salvation. He is talking about regeneration. He's talking about justification. He's talking about sanctification. He's talking about the law in relationship to grace. He's talking about all of the elements of the biblical faith, the whole counsel of God. This is a very 
thoroughgoing treatment of what the apostle himself had received for three years in the desert of Arabia. Isn't it interesting that at the beginning of his own Christian career, he is three years being taught directly by the Lord Jesus Christ. And here in Ephesus, he spends three years teaching what he had been taught, passing on what he had learned to the Ephesians and to those from Asia Minor who came in contact with him or came actually seeking to hear what he had to say. All right, so this is the likely uh, uh, the likely text which illuminates the debt that Philemon owed to the apostle. He was converted by him, converted probably by hearing him in the school of Tyrannus, converted certainly by hearing him in Ephesus, converted and went back then to Colossae where a church was formed in his own house and eventually Epaphras came to be a servant helper in that congregation. So what does Philemon owe Paul? You owe me your conversion. You owe me your life in Christ. You are in my debt with respect to your salvation, with respect to the substitute that Christ is for you, with respect to the imputation that Christ has granted to you, namely the imputation of his righteousness to your account for justification. You're in his debt for removing your guilt penalty and your damnworthiness, the fact that you deserve to perish eternally because of your sin. You owe, you owe your life in Christ to me, not because of me, but through me, Christ was brought to your heart, soul, and life. I am not the cause of your salvation. The Holy Spirit, through Christ's work, is the cause of your salvation. I am merely the instrument. But in that regard, you owe that to me. And now I am going to take Onesimus's debt. So repay me with the favor of accepting Onesimus, even as Christ accepted you. Receive this child of mine in Christ, even as you, as a child of God, have been received in Christ as a newborn and regenerated believer in the Lord our Savior. Now, I've kind of given away the store there on that last part of the outline on the page one. Is Paul being uh, heavy-handed here? I've already addressed that. Let me say one more thing. To accuse the apostle of being manipulative or power broker or heavy-handed is simply to impose our values upon him and to read him in the light of our own sinful inclinations. That is unfair uh, to the text. 
It's also unfair to the drama here. Because what Paul is doing is shifting the vectors. He's shifting the focus. He's not heavy-handed. He's not twisting arms. He's not using his power. Paul is uh, shifting him, is removing himself from the portrait. He is removing himself for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ being the center of the narrative, the center of the drama. It is not, this epistle is not about Paul. Not really. It's not about Philemon or Onesimus. This epistle is about Christ the Lord. That's the reason that that sandwich in verse 20 is so important. It is about being in the Lord, in Christ the Lord. This is about what your life in Christ is. My life in Christ is. Onesimus' life in Christ is. That community that meets in your church, their life in Christ is. These who are with me here in prison in verses 23 to 24, their life in Christ ostensibly is. We have to, we have to exert, <coughs> exempt Demas from that as we've noted before and we will note subsequently. But this gentle reminder that the apostle uses here, let me benefit from you as you have benefited in Christ. Let me benefit from you, remembering that Onesimus has benefited from Christ. You owe yourself to me. That is true. Philemon owed himself to Paul in terms of the messenger and instrument of his own redemption. Onesimus owed himself to Paul. So both Philemon and Onesimus are on the same level with respect to the debt they owe to the Apostle Paul. Now, accept my plea on behalf of this debtor, even as Christ accepted your plea on behalf of your debts. The focus is not upon the individuals per se. The focus is upon the individuals in relationship to Christ. Christ is the center of these relational <clears throat> paradigms, these relational dramas, these relational feelings, these relational obligations and counter-obligations. This epistle is a beautiful expression of what it means to be in Christ Jesus and to live and respond out of that precious and tender and very poignant drama. All right, any questions or comments that you'd like to make? Pete? Is there a reason that uh, you chose to have Asia referred to the whole Asia Minor rather than to the province of Asia? Yeah, my suspicion, that's a good question, Pete. My suspicion is 
that because of the importance of Ephesus as a trading and cultural center, it more or less is kind of like the hub of that whole Western Asia Minor area. Probably the most heavily populated of all the cities on that coastline and therefore receiving a great deal of attention by way of trade and ships and caravans, etc. In fact, that road that comes all the way across Central Asia Minor through the Cappadocians from Tarsus all over, over to Ephesus is a major trade route that's coming up from the east as well, including Syria. So uh, that, that's, that's my opinion of why. Ephesus is such a central portion of the culture and commerce of that area that uh, he can say uh, Asia, meaning Western Asia in the sense that all of that is spinning off through the, like the, wheel, the, the spokes of a wheel into those other uh, cities like Sardis and Laodicea, etc., ones that are mentioned by John in uh, the Revelation, and they're all in Asia, Asia, province of Asia. They're all in that western region, that's correct, yes. And uh, I don't think there's a definitive answer, but I think yours is a, certainly a reasonable answer. Oh, thank you. Uh, no, there isn't a definitive answer. It's a kind of unique use of Asia, you know, the, the, the smaller for the, the larger for the smaller. Uh, but I, I think that that's what's behind it. At least that's my my best suggestion. <laughs> yes, Scott. By mentioning the household for us, I know you were intending, of course, the evangelism of, of Philemon. Are you thinking of the great sacrifice Paul went to and, and being there all those years? Was, was that? Is there anything else in the broader that you have in mind besides him? I haven't, I haven't thought about that. I, I, you know, I wouldn't withdraw that from consideration, but, um, yeah, essentially, which is a sacrifice because, of course, he puts himself to tent making while he's there and won't indebt him, won't be indebted to any of the uh, people that are there. So, um, that's a possibility. That's a possibility. Yes, man. Um, the three year, Exile of Paul in the desert. Where, what's the reference for this? Reference? Acts in Acts nine, no Acts. Galatians two. Good. Um, <clears throat> oh, come on, Jim. Thank you for bailing me out. Um, I thought it was in Acts nine, but uh, I don't. I'm not picking it up. But uh, yeah, that's the, that biographical review in Galatians one does uh, pick up what happens after the Damascus Road experience. Yeah, I looked through Acts while we were, and I didn't find it. You didn't find it, okay? But Galatians is good. Then, then it's certain it's not there. It's in Galatians one. Well. <laughs> All right, well, let's take a break.
Now, I want to point out that in verse 20, we have a reiteration of some things that the apostle has already done by way of uh, pleading and appealing. In verses 9 and 10, he made his initial appeal to Philemon. Then in verses 15 and 16, he made a declaration of Onesimus's state, that he was no longer a slave per se, but a brother. Now remember that we didn't mean that he was not going to have that role as a slave, but he is more than a slave, he's a brother in Christ. Then in verses 17 and 18, the request that the apostle makes to assume the obligations and those responsibilities that Onesimus has for whatever offense he's committed against his master. Now, there are some terms here in this 20th verse which are being repeated from other verses in this letter. And the sequence of those terms is important in terms of this climactic point of the letter. So, as you look at verse 20, do you see a word there that you have seen before or perhaps twice before? Well, as you look at that word brother in verse 20 and you look up at verse 16, what do you see there? Beloved brother. brother. And who is the object there in verse 16? Who is the brother? Onesimus. Onesimus. Who is the brother here in verse 20? Philemon. And do you find that word brother anywhere else in the letter? Pardon? Verse 1. Not in the text, Ben. That is, it's not in the Greek text. You'll notice it's in italics in the New American Standard. It's a supposition. It's probably a logical supposition, but it's not in the text. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, I apologize. Thank you. Anywhere else? Notice verse 7. And who is the object in verse 7? Randy? Philemon. So the pattern here, leaving Timothy outside of the pattern for the moment, is Philemon as a brother in verse 7, Onesimus as a brother in verse 16, and Philemon as a brother here in verse 20. We could say that there's a sandwiching of Onesimus as a brother in Christ between Philemon, or Philemon, shall we say, surrounds him. I'm not going to push that uh, too seriously, but nonetheless I observe the pattern. Now there's another word here in verse 20 that also is used previously, and that's the word heart. Refresh my heart in Christ. Now 
Here, the heart is obviously the heart of the Apostle Paul. If you turn back to verse 12, you'll notice the word occurs again, and whose heart is being described there. Now, it's Paul's heart. Then in verse 7, we already mentioned verse 7 with respect to the word brother. You will notice in verse 7, the word heart or hearts plural is used. And who is the object there? And who are these saints? Bob? The church in Colossae, the saints, the believers in that Colossian church that meets in Philemon's house. So here, uh, it's the heart of the community, the heart of the saints of the community, which would include Philemon, and it's Paul's heart in verses 12 and 20. He's building then on that emotional attachment as a brother in Christ as uh, a part of his own heart or uh, central to his own emotional well-being, or particularly his emotional well-being in Christ. And then he uses, as one uh, commentator, John Nordling, uh, says, playful pluck. I like the alliteration there, so I attempted to do one better than Nordling. Playfully puckish pun here in verse uh, twenty. Because he uses a word for useful, let me have benefit or let me have something useful from you in the Lord. And you can see the Greek word there, onaimen, which is very similar in sound to onesimon. Uh, let, let, uh, you will be useful or you will be onesimus to me. So the pun here, is intended to suggest to Philemon that even as Onesimus has been of service to the Apostle Paul, Paul can can make Philemon an Onesimus himself. That is, useful to himself with respect to his uh, proposed visit, his receiving what has been written by the Apostle's hand, his relationship to Onesimus as reconciled and received. So this is a very interesting uh, punning on a Greek term which would connote much more than the very uh, literal translation of the term would suggest. Which brings us to verse 21, where Paul says, I am confident that you will do even more than what I say. What more could Philemon do than what Paul had asked? Return Philemon to Paul. Return Philemon to Paul. That is one uh, one thing more that he could do. That is true. Onesimus had served Paul. Paul sending Onesimus back to Philemon. Would Philemon be willing to release him to go back to serve Paul in prison? What else? What else could be something more that Philemon could do with respect to Onesimus? He could give him his freedom. 
It is possible that he could emancipate him. That is true. That is possible. We can't rule that out. Okay? Though I don't think that that's the case, nonetheless, we can't rule it out. Yes, Pete. He could forgive his debt. could forgive his debt. That is correct. And in forgiving his debt, receive him where? Yes, but what's that? How, what is in that household? Church. Church. Yes, receive him as a member of the church of that household. In other words, that Onesimus could be folded in to the body of believers that meet in that house. Now, Paul did not mandate emancipation. He did not mandate manumission. We cannot rule it out, as Ben observes, but it is not a part of his imperatives here in this unit. However, what is here in this letter in terms of narrative and rhetorical structure would lead in the nature of the case to the demise of slavery in Christian circles as, in fact, Christian history has testified. It is in the Christian world that slavery has more or less been abolished. It is outside of the Christian world that slavery is still alive and well in even this 21st century world. So the principles of receiving one's servant or slave in Christ, those principles are going in the nature of the case to lead to regarding that person with dignity, and dignity includes freedom and liberty and as that paradigm continues to simmer and to percolate in the consciousness of Christians, the institution of slavery or the state's support of slavery is going to wither away. It's going to disappear. And that, of course, is true. It has disappeared in Western uh, countries, <coughs> countries which uh, are, are anchored at least in that Christian uh, a view of benevolence and kindness to those who are servants and even slaves. So even though there is no abolitionist mandate here, the seeds of the destruction, the seeds of the death of slavery as an institution are within this epistle rightly understood. All right, now... <clears throat> The, tech, the last verse, verse 22, says that Paul is going to visit, or at least wants to visit Philemon. And this raises the issue of the apostolic parousia. Now, we've hinted at this in previous uh, <clears throat> meetings, so... Let's take a look at a couple of places where the apostolic parousia stands out. Let's go to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And beginning at verse 19. And going down to verse 24.
Abigail, do you have it? Yes. Would you read verse 19 for us? Philippians 2, verse 19. And I hope and reward Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. Okay, verse 20. Scott Sanborn, do you have it? Yep. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Verse 21, Pete. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Art, verse 22. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. Verse 23, Marge. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately, as soon as I see how things go with me. And finally, verse 24. Bob, you have it? And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. All right, now I want you to notice the inclusio there. You will notice in verse 19 that he is going to send Timothy. In other words, Timothy is going to come to him. But in verse 24, he hopes that he himself will also come uh, to the Philippians. This is the so-called apostolic parousia, which has been a center of scholarly discussion for about 60 years now. And in a very interesting uh, uh, What's the word I want? <clears throat> Formative uh, uh, article back in the 50s and has been revisited as recently as 2006 in the scholarly journals. <clears throat> uh, this pattern fascinates the students of the Apostle Paul's letters. <clears throat> Namely, that he's going to come to the church or he's going to send one in his place to come to the church. And here in Philippians 2, we have both sides of that dichotomy. <clears throat> he hopes to come in verse 24, but he's also going to send Timothy. Timothy's going to come. All right, now there's another passage which clearly points out this coming motif of the apostle. First Thessalonians chapter 2. So if you turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 17 through chapter 3, verse 3. 1 Thessalonians 2, 17. And Kay, I'm going to begin with you if you have it. 1 Thessalonians 2, 17? Correct. But we brothers... But we brethren have been benefit of you for a short while in person, not in spirit, for all the more eager with great desire to see your face. Thank you. Verse 18, Cheryl. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Thank you. Ben, verse 19. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? At his coming, at his parousia. Verse 20, Terry. Uh, for you are our glory and joy. For chapter 3, verse 1. And Lisa, would you read? No, you're not there. That's okay. Abigail, verse 1 of chapter 3. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. Chapter, uh, verse 2. Sharon, do you have it? Okay. Scott. 
And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel to establish and exhort you in your faith. And finally, verse 3, Pete. Let no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourself know that we are destined for this. Notice that he sent Timothy, his brother, but he himself wanted to come to them in verse 18. All right, so what's the point of this so-called apostolic parousia? It's the fascinating pattern which borrows upon the coming of Christ. In fact, you see that there in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, the Lord Jesus at his coming. It's this fascinating mirror reflection of Christ coming and the apostle coming. And the apostle coming through even an ambassador or a representative. So, is this image of the so-called apostolic parousia anchored in the broader motif of Christ's parousia? That's a very interesting question, and I'm not... I don't have an opinion which settles the matter on one side or the other. I'm fascinated as the scholars are fascinated with the use of the imagery and if it has any kind of genuine significance, it has a poignancy which reinforces the relationship or the union or the mystical relationship between Christ and the apostle. So that in his coming, it is as very, it is as the coming of Christ itself. The coming of Christ himself comes in the coming of the apostle. It's a remarkable suggestion. It may be, uh, it may be of, uh, of, of no effect. In other words, we may be reading into the text what is not there, but nonetheless, it is something worth considering and it is a, uh, a favorite topic in Pauline theology. So, uh, is his desire to come or to visit Philemon part of this pattern of the apostolic parousia? It may be, and the significance of that we will leave uh, for you to solve on your own. All right. I've, I've, I've uh, tantalized you with it because I'm tantalized with it myself. It's, uh, it's something I've thought about for almost 20 years but I have not come to any solid conclusions about it. Uh, there are scholars who have come to very certain conclusions about it, <laughs> but I'm not sure I share their conclusion because most of them are liberals. At any rate, uh, Randy. Forgive my amnesia, but he doesn't ever make it back to Ephesus, right? Or does he? Well, um, or we don't know. we're not sure about that. If he's released from prison, as we think he was, in this imprisonment, in which he's now bound while he's writing this letter, if he's released from that imprisonment and he actually uh, takes the uh, journey to Tarshish as he uh, desires, he wants to go all the way to Spain. And I don't know whether you noticed, but uh, just in the last two weeks, uh, they've discovered some uh, sunken uh, boat hulls off the coast of Palestine which are very, very old and suggest a very vigorous trans-Mediterranean shipping business, which goes all the way back into the first millennium B.C. In other words, there are ships which were strong enough to have gone all the way to the Straits of Gibraltar or to the fabled Tarshish on the far western end of the world 
at that time. In other words, it got a small confirmation of the fact that there were, uh, as we suspect from Solomon's trading ventures uh, with the Phoenician ships uh, plying the Mediterranean basin, there are uh, vigorous trading uh, enterprises bringing material and, uh, and ore, uh, probably tin for use in making bronze from uh, the mountains of Spain and other things from north, the tip of North Africa, etc. And these boats, uh, at least it's one boat, is suggestive of very vigorous, uh, probably Phoenician uh, 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 maritime endeavor. Uh, anyway, if, if he is released, as uh, we think he was, and he uh, made another fourth missionary journey, then it was during that journey that he wrote the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. We can't fit those epistles into the chronology of his life any other way. They don't seem to have been written while he was in prison in this, uh, in this instance, when he writes uh, Philemon, Colossians, Philippians, etc. Well, then, uh, during that time when he is going to, uh, ostensibly to the west, to Spain, does he come back to uh, the Near Eastern, to the Middle Eastern uh, region? Does he come back to Ephesus? Does he come back to um, to, uh, uh, to Caesarea. Um, it, it's, it's possible that he did. The only one, the only thing I would suggest that he may not have come back to Ephesus is when he says farewell to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, he doesn't expect to ever see them again. Well, does that mean human expectation? Or was that, you know, he actually had a revelation he wasn't going to see them again? <clears throat> so, if he did come back, uh, towards the east again, he did not come back to uh, Western Asia Minor, but he went perhaps to Palestine, perhaps back to Rome, was rearrested, and then executed sometime before Nero himself committed suicide around 68 A.D. <coughs> Pete? At the end of Acts, it appears as though he's in a house, under house arrest with a guard, chained to him. On the other hand, they have a prison in Rome today that they claim he was in. Does that in any way indicate a possible two imprisonment? Second imprisonment. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. Quite possibly, Pete. Yeah, quite possibly. Is that reputable that he was in that prison, or is that just a, one of these... I, 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 don't, I don't credit that with anything more than a traditional identification, but one has to be careful with those traditional identifications because in some instances they are accurate. For instance, it is tradition that Paul was executed along with Peter in Rome sometime during Nero's reign. That tradition is verified in First Clement, the epistle of Clement to Rome, of Clement of Rome to the Corinthian church at the end of the first century, about 94 to 96 AD. So that, that tradition is verified by another, uh, comment from a, a subsequent writer for whom, and I don't have any reason to doubt it. So some of these traditions could be actually accurate. Uh, it's a, I just read it as Yes, yes. It, yes, he's based on First Clement. That's yeah. correct. Yeah. So, I mean, we, 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 we sit lightly on these things, okay? We're fascinated by them, but, you know, we, we, we can't say with infallible certainty that any of them are actually true. 
Yet there is historical plausibility, and I would say in the case of the martyrdom of Peter and Paul, a high degree of plausibility. I would say I'm I'm, I'm 99% sure that they were beheaded or executed under Nero's reign of terror. They were claimed claimed that they were also buried in a road. Yes, yes, they there are claims that was about six years ago where they thought they had uncovered Peter's grave and they they had some kind of marking that indicated that they thought that they had come across his grave. Well, I'm not I'm not interested in what they do with it. That's just interesting as a historical fact. All right, now one final thing here. Uh, we're pondering apostolic parousia and what significance that may have or not have, as the case may be. Uh, let's also ponder a matter of uh, narrative space here, just for a moment in closing. Paul is writing from Rome. That's one narrative space venue. Philemon is in Colossae, he writes to Colossae from Rome, one narrative venue, to Colossae, other narrative venue. Now, obviously, there's a narrative interface between these two narrative spaces, namely that the persons in those narrative spaces are in relationship. They are in relationship in their respective venues. Verses 1 and 10, as well as verses 23 to 25, list those persons who are in narrative relationship with the apostle in Rome, which includes Timothy, Onesimus, and those who are listed in verses 23 and 24. Verses 1 and 2 list those in narrative relation with the apostle in Colossae, including Philemon, Apphia, Aristarchus, and other members of that household. I'm sorry, not Aristarchus, but uh, Archippus. So, we have individuals in these space narrative venues. We have individuals who are interfaced in relationship, particularly with the Apostle Paul. But what transcends the specific narrative venues is this transcendent relationship. Namely, the relationship in Christ, en Christo, or en curio. The relationship in Christ of those devoted to the apostle in Rome and Colossae. That relationship also transcends ethnic distinctions. There is neither Jew nor Greek. They are one in Christ Jesus, whether in Rome or in Colossae, whether in that narrative space or that narrative space. There is a transcendent relationship which is beyond narrative venue. This relationship also transcends sexual distinction. There is neither male nor female. All are one in Christ Jesus. That transcendence, even of sexual distinction, disappears in Christ Jesus. That relationship transcends class distinctions. 
There is neither bond nor free. They are one in Christ Jesus. There is a transcendent dimension then in terms of the individual class roles of individuals here, which goes beyond those class distinctions. And it transcends ritualistic distinctions. There is neither circumcised nor uncircumcised. They are one in Christ Jesus. My point here is to observe that earthly narrative space is transcended by the in Christ Jesus venue. Earthly narrative relation is transcended by the in Christ Jesus relationship. Paul's letter here is an epistle of this sweet and everlasting relationship. A sweet and everlasting relationship which takes the priority, which has the focal centrality. A sweet and everlasting relationship which transcends heaven and earth. Together then, in Christ, we possess a heavenly and eschatological relationship. That is the ultimate passion and drama of this epistle. It is drawing you into an eschatological frame and relation. It is drawing you into the eschatological person and into his eschatological benefits. Let us pray. We bless you, O Lord, for Christ Jesus, your Son, and for how he has taken the Apostle and Philemon and Onesimus and others in this letter into relation with himself. And in that relationship has caused them to realize that they have died unto this world and have been made alive unto life everlasting. They have died to the things of this world and been made heirs of the heavenly things in Christ Jesus. We thank you then that in the particulars of this epistle, that Onesimus died to those things, even as Philemon died to those things, those things which were to be transcended by the wonderful transformation which took place in their own hearts and lives. We bless you for the work of your spirit through Paul, your servant, to those who are named in this epistle. And we thank you, O Lord, that we too of like faith have been called into that eschatological reality, that narrative dimension which transcends all things earthly and even the canopy of heaven itself. For it, trans- for it enters into the dimension where your radiance and effulgence and your glory and the treasures of your rich grace abide forever and ever and ever. We thank you for those riches which are ours in Christ Jesus. In his name, amen.